Hello and welcome to the latest Viva Cost podcast. My name is Graham Spence and tonight I'm joined by Alison Graham. Hello, Alison. Hi, Graham. How are you? Happy I'm New Year. Oh, Happy New Year to you too. It's our first time that we've recorded in 2023. Yes. Um, having obviously had a very successful year in 2022. Um, yeah. And I think today we're going to have a chat about that, aren't we? Yep, I think it's always good to to reflect and review and see what worked. You know, we talk about this a lot: what worked, what didn't work, and you know, learn from that. And I think um, New Year's always a kind of traditional time to be able to reflect and review on what's past and look towards the future and see what, um, if anything, you would do differently, or you know, what new goals or new bars you want to set for yourself. So, yeah, I think that's a a very appropriate time. I think to be having this conversation. Here, here we are. So, I guess we should start with where are we? Like, what what have we learned over twenty? You know, I, I think the last big event, the last keystone event we had um, was the twenty twenty one election, which elected the Scottish government with a manifesto for independence, um, and the people of Scotland were finally going to have their um, say, and that was to be in October of twenty twenty three. Suffice it to say, I don't think we're going to have that um, referendum, given that I've now booked a holiday for October, knowing that I probably won't be needed at a polling station on that day. Um, and then we've, we've gone from electing that government and the, the sort of green coalition government that we got through that. Um, and we've got the uh, the Greens have had a wee bit of success, I suppose, in their manifesto, because we've got the... we've. We've got the Gender Recognition Act getting battered through Parliament as though it's the greatest emergency known to man, um, or woman, or, you know, I'm not going to make a joke because I'll get cancelled before I even get going. But um, they've also, they've got the Lorna Slater's um, bottle scheme, you know, for the plastic bottles and the glass bottles. That's gone through Parliament and from the wider industry, I hear that's a total shambles as well. Um, so we've 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 managed these two pieces of domestic legislation. Um, we've recovered from COVID in the sense of well, we don't really talk about it anymore. Although I did notice there's some winter vaccination program that's suddenly kicked up in January. Um, the NHS is in absolute chaos. The police is in chaos. The justice system's in chaos. The weather's in chaos. There's, there's chaos all about. We're now in perma crisis. And then yep. um, we we moved we moved on from that, didn't we? Yeah, that's a new phrase, isn't it? Perma crisis. But um, yeah, where to, where to start, really? Um, how to make any sense of the chaos? And something I think the chaos is is deliberate is to keep us so um, head spinning that we don't get a chance to actually sit down and work out each of the problems um, and see what the kind of root cause of a lot of the problems are. Um, you know, that's you know one thing. I think Commonweal do very well, that they do tend to really get to the, the, the root of the causes of problems and try and work mm -hmm. out solutions that are going to be sustainable, um, which was kind of like a buzzword, but you know, sustainable, what I mean is it's what, things that will work and will grow with the population. Um, and there's a big thing, I keep coming back to it, something that Craig Dale had mentioned before um, about future, future neutral democracy, which is quite hard to say, um, future neutral democracy. And I think that is something that I keep coming back to um, when I see some of the things that have been done at the moment by a Scottish government 
that are, you know, supposed to be taking us to independence, they seem to be trying to pre-can a lot of the solutions. And that's not really, well, two things. One, that's not really their job. Their job, absolutely, they're in, in government, in a devolved government in Hollywood, um, to keep the, you know, the train on the tracks, as it were. Probably not a good thing with train strikes going on, but um, a good kind of analogy. But also to ultimately, you know, the, the reason that I would suggest the majority of people voted for the SNP was to deliver on independence. So to do that, that's really difficult when you are, you know, trying to make an independence um, that is, you know, forged in your policies, because you then, you know, it's a, it's a pretty naive position if your goal really is independence. If your goal is party dominance in a devolved you know, administration, then that's different. But if your goal is independence, then you need to make that as appealing to as cross, you know, section of society as possible. And there will be people, you know, across the board who, you know, support the principle of independence or are, are becoming less, you know, negative towards it, as you've seen in some of the polling, you know, over the last um, few months. Um, but how that then translates into political seats, I think, is a bit misleading because, um, you know, you've got people within the Labour Party. So we've talked for a bit um, plebiscite elections. How does plebiscite elections work for Labour voters who actually are pretty amenable to independence? Do you categorise that as a, as a no vote for independence or do you categorise that as a, a maybe vote for independence? So I think it's, it's really difficult to unpick a lot of these layers. And I think that's something that's going to become a lot more evident in 2023 because a lot of people have been, you know, they talk about being marched up the hill and marched back down again. There's a lot of people that are still, you know, looking at social media, still holding the SNP to 2023, um, you know, and hoping maybe some hoping, you know, against hope that, you know, they've got a secret, they have got a secret plan and they'll pull something out of a bag. And then I think you've got other people that are saying this is your last chance, you know, like, you know, fool as once, what have you. But, you know, you were put in position to do something. So I think 2023 is going to be a really difficult year for the SNP. And I've not seen any evidence of them having a humble attitude to that. I think there's been a, an entrenched digging deep arrogance, to be honest, from a lot of the kind of behaviours I've seen just recently. You talked about the, the GRR bill. Um, I mean, some of the things like Roddy Dunlop, Dean of the Faculty of Advocates, has been blocked by Joe Fitzpatrick, who was the, the chair of the, you know, the Equality Com um, Committee, who was on the, the, the bill. That seems really extreme. It, it, it does, again, worry me about something that I've seen for a while, which is this kind of what I would call lazy legislators devolving the responsibility to lobbyists. I think we've now got people you know, devolving, you know, elected members devolving their judgment to block lists. I mean, you've got people who come around saying, oh, mm -hmm. I've been blocked, blocked, blocked by an elected member. I've never, I've never met them in my life. I've never interacted with them in my life. And that's a pretty bad look for an elected member, particularly when you're trying to say, come all, come many, engaged in Scotland's future. But only if you, you know, agree with me. You don't even know whether people agree with you if you don't interact with them. A lot of that comes down to, though, um, the Scottish government, you know, they they would say they're being big and they're being bold and they're having, you know, they're getting involved in legislation that is at the bleeding edge of current thought. The only problem with that is it, it by default, is quite controversial legislation. It's by default the more difficult parts of 
legislation to get right. There's not very much international experience to pick upon. There's not very much. And I think that flies in the face of a lot of what we do because in Scottish independence, we've always had a, a propensity to almost copy other European countries or other mm -hmm. Nordic countries and say, this has worked really well for these people. We yeah. should copy that here. And then all of a sudden we flip to a model of, well, we're going to establish international best practice. And then you say, on what basis? Do you, who, who defines international be best practice? And it turns out that we just made it up. Well, do you know the thing? I, this is this is another thing that really bothers me. I think there's there tends to be a focus on focusing on what other people have got as a result without really scrutinising the process they got there. Because you know, you know, it's often said the journey is as important as the destination, and it's something I've always felt about independence. You know, how we get there, what we learn on that way is really important. Now, if you look at you know the the the, the controversial GRR bill from the pre-Christmas um, holiday and how it made Parliament sit late. So it broke Parliament's ideals of being a family-free uh, free Parliament, an accessible Parliament. All sorts of bad publicity could really have done without. Um, and it looks as if it will rumble on. Um, and there'll be at least, you know, a few challenges to that. Um, not least, you know, I think there's consideration from the, the UK government um, to look at Section 35 of the Scotland Act. And, you know, the, there's nothing to stop other organisations. I mean, I think it was like the, the Christian Institute or something that um, challenged the name Person Bill, for example. It wasn't a government that did it. it was, so, I think it, I think it should... The, the Christian Institute, I mean, I don't mean to offend any of our, our viewers or listeners, but I mean, the Christian Institute to me is one of those bonkers organisations that exists that just, you know, exists in a stone age that doesn't exist anymore. And even I read some of their submissions, especially on named persons and GRR and things like that. I read the Christian Institute submission and I thought either I've joined the stone age, which, you know, could entirely be possible. Or they, they make a lot of sense. So it shows, you know, I don't have any sort of adversity to the Christian Institute. I think they do what they do. And, you know, in certain things, I would happily ignore them. Um, but they've, 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 they've come up with some good and salient points. There's things going forward from it. We, we, we seem to have hit, you know, especially in GRR, it's supposed to be a bill. I think, what was, the, I, I don't want to get the exact quote wrong, so it was a similar quote. It was, I think Shona Robson stood up and said, this bill um, doesn't give any new rights. It's, yeah. It shouldn't be controversial. It doesn't. It, so for something that shouldn't be that controversial, it certainly seemed to be quite controversial. So it shows me that, you know, yeah. someone standing up and announcing this should not be controversial doesn't particularly... No, it, it, it's so, a little bit like Brexit this, deal. You can say that, doesn't mean it's true. Is this is, is this the Scottish Parliament? I mean, we, there was a lot of easy things for the Scottish Parliament. There was a lot, you know, they came in and they'd done free education for Scotland. They'd done the council tax freeze. They, they, they'd done quite well with their budgets. They had quite a good understanding that, you know, the, the cost of providing prescription management was actually costing almost as yeah. much as it does just to give the prescription out for free. There's a sort of, there's a, there's that random statistic that goes around Facebook every sort of winter. It's like, if you're going to go to your doctor for paracetamol, you know, it's 32 pence and Asda, not £10 via the NHS. The truth is the NHS doesn't pay £10 for paracetamol. The NHS pays the same 20, 15 pence that you could pay. The problem is, it's you need to see a doctor because you're not entirely sure why you, you know, if you do just have a headache, take paracetamol. But 
if you think you've got something seriously wrong with you, you know, the, the £10 is actually the consultation. Yeah. Um, and I've seen there's been a lot of nonsense going online now saying that, you know, doctors don't want to see patients and such, which isn't true because the doctors are actually paid per patient. So they they do want to see patients. It's not certainly the business model of doctors in Scotland. The NHS, you know, there's very few NHS doctors. They're all private practice. They want to see, they all want to see more and more NHS patients because it's a bigger amount of money. The problem we've got is, you know, the Scottish Government is now trying to manage decline of the NHS. It's trying to manage an overwhelmed A&E that's, you know, told everybody not to turn up for two years. It's got the COVID backlog because we never bothered to do anything else during COVID. We're now, people who would have gone to the NHS during COVID and the subsequent reopenings didn't, and therefore everything they're turning up with now, what was a wonky knee or was a, you know, was a sore a sore bit in their stomach when they ate something. There's now a very serious condition and that's having to get managed through the NHS on an emergency basis, which sucks in all the resources. The, the outcomes have got worse, the the staff are overwhelmed. And then we, we come back to, you know, COVID's getting the blame and COVID does share a huge proportion of the blame. And, so, and certainly some of the overreaction, you know, to the, to the, the point that NHS, you know, things were canceled so that we had to deal with this virus and you know there were things like physiotherapists saying well like the best will in the world i'm not going to get deployed into the icu to deal with intubation so they should have kept that going but brexit has been allowed to get away with the fact that our nhs has 32 percent less staff in it than it did in 2018. Yeah, I think that's a key thing. It's it's the NH staff is the people. You know, fundamentally, it's the people. It's the the resources. That is what makes the NHS what it is. And COVID, as a global pandemic, was an event. The decisions yes. that were made and the political decisions, particularly that were made during COVID. You know, you can say it, it was an unexpected event. You know, you have to deal with things as best as you can. But there didn't seem to be a lot of learning as we went through. Um, and I think this is the big problem we've been left with. We, we've been left with, I mean, I said at the time, during COVID, actually, during lockdown, I had a lot of friends that worked in um, the NHS. Some of them were working in COVID wards through the whole time in ICU, which was horrific um, experience. And, you know, both them and like kids and teachers and energy really on the front line. I mean, I lost um, a couple of friends who were on the front line um, during COVID. You know, but people who, who came through it and survived and families and stuff and looking at kids, particularly, I've got two kids who are in high school. Every single child, you know, every frontline worker should have been considered as a baseline as having, you know, additional support requirements. You know, whether it's additional support needs through school or understanding of, you know, when you work on adrenaline for so long, you, it kind of normalises and it is really excessively bad for your system. So you've got people who literally hit a wall. Um, and there's a lot of people, you know, through, you know, family, being in hospitals and different things and speaking to different NHS um, staff. You know, there's so many people who are so committed, but they're done. They're absolutely done in. And so we've got the double whammy of Brexit, Scotland being a country that, that needs immigration, been forced into a hostile immigration situation by the UK government who, you know, are doing it from an ideological point of view. And we've also got people who are absolutely battered by the experience that they've been through. 
And, you know, mm-hmm. they're the ones that are needing support. Um, you know, we've talked a bit about mental health support and stuff before. You know, there really is very little. You know, there's there's a lot of complex things, as you said, whether it's physical complex things or, you know, a combination or a mental health, you know, or, or, or a bit of both. You know, these are complex things. These are not things that are fixed by a tablet or, you know, a, a plaster or what have you. This is stuff that takes intense resource. Um and, and that is something that when you're in a, a crisis situation, you are patching and pushing out back out the door. You are trying to free up beds yeah. because you're trying to say constantly, it is like a war situation. The triage, triage was actually invented during the First World War. You know, when you actually yeah. assessed, is this person going to survive or not? If if not, we're not going to focus on them. We're going to fo- So there's no empathy and end of life care. It's things are belt and braces down to, you know, and even during, I remember seeing during a lot of the, the coverage of Italy during COVID before it really hit here badly, but we got none of this coverage. But, you know, this is Italy, particularly the north of Italy, very, very good NHS, or NHS, very good health system. And they were losing so many doctors and so many patients and all the kind of horrific scenes of, you know, people in the car park and there was no oxygen and they were running oxygen and all sorts mm-hmm. of things. And they were having to make decisions of, you know, saying who's more worthy of the, the auction we've got left. I mean, when you've got finite resources, and this is something I think we need to kind of explore more on Viva Cost podcast as we go through, because there's a few things that I've been reading, I won't go into so much tonight, but that people are talking about, you know, we kind of briefly touched on GRR, but self-ID. You know, a lot of things are about, you know, finite resources and where priorities lie. Mm-hmm. And this is a big danger when you start getting into the kind of self-declaration aspect of that, you know, your judgment, you know, if you've got something that's a medical thing, particularly, you know, I would strongly suggest somebody who is a medical consultant has got more insight into, you know, what you need than maybe you do, you know, because you're comparing, you know, what you've, you've kind of self-assessed. They're looking at the resources they've got and how they allocate that. And you see it in a unique thing. We make- we make that argument. So, so let, 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 let's hold these two things together. It's quite odd that we can pull gender and COVID together, but why not? We're on the Viva Cost podcast. That's what we do here. But let, let's go into that. Let's explore what you've just said. So, the the GRR effectively removes the medical personnel from the decision making. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. So, so they, that removes the medical personnel. With COVID, which is still a thing, as much as we've parked COVID, it isn't parked in the sense you can't get it. You still can absolutely get it. Um, we've we've done away with testing, so the public can't get tested anymore, which may or may not be a bad thing. Pers- personally, I don't think living your life testing every time that you've got a sore throat is going to particularly get you there. However, there's also a drug called Paxlovid, or Pax. It's, it's like Paxlovid or something. And in America, you can you, you can get it same day if you've got COVID you can get Paxlovid the same day and you only need to have the symptoms. And I actually think you can walk into a pharmacy and get it. And if not a pharmacy, you could probably get it at like CVS, Walgreens, things like that. You walk in, you get Paxlovid, you take your five-day course and it, it sort of kills COVID for you. It helps you get over it. In the UK, we have the drug. You can get prescribed it inside a medical facility, usually not your doctors because they'll tell you if you've got the symptoms of COVID, stay home. But you can certainly get it if you're in hospital and you can be given Paxlovid. Now, the interesting thing is, on something as simple as, here, take this drug to stop COVID, which is currently causing chaos everywhere, 
we've deigned it that there must be a medical professional gets involved there. And it's Paxlovid's not a life-altering drug. It's not a, you know, it certainly doesn't change your gender. It certainly doesn't change your entire life. And yet we've said a medical professional is required for your five-day course of COVID drug, but now medical intervention isn't required for, you know, the whole GRR thing. And I think that it comes down to who in government is, like, what, what is the gatekeeping? What is the what is the process? What is the, the analysis here? What risk analysis are we doing? Because it seems, you know, as much as we go on about we will protect our NHS and, you know, bef- I will, you know, rocks will melt and doors will fly and Scotland will never have a private NHS and such. The interesting thing is if you look at the private health systems, of which there are many to look at, and you look at some of those private health systems, things like bed blocking are not actually an issue. And the reason bed blocking is not an issue is because in America, quite frankly, no insurance company will stump up the money to keep somebody in the hospital waiting on social care at home. It just, the, the whole idea that the most expensive way to hold someone, the most expensive hotel in the UK, is holding someone hostage in a hospital waiting for their home care to exist. So by the time you take, you know, you take a what was it, 28% staff reduction because of Brexit, and by the time you increase bed blocking by double or whatever nonsense it's gone up by, we look at that, we look at things that we could intervene on, like strep A's been hammering about, but we've made no antibiotics, there's no community sentinel kind of testing and sentinel. There was talk of it, there was talk of going into schools that had high strep A, Um, the the public is in a frenzy, which, I mean, the odd thing is strep A's been a thing for... 20, 30 years, it's not a new disease, unfortunately, some children did die, but they they have always died of it, it's never just but we've become But it's a public health notification it's a public health notification Mm. back to your testing, if it's not notified, people don't know, and the vulnerable get it, and uh, you know personal story, my dad had strep A, we were never told, somebody else in the care home had had died from it and it wasn't until my dad you know, went into, I had to phone the ambulance for my dad when he went into hospital. Um, and that was, you know, there's, let's just say there's a lot of issues in the care service as well. And, you exactly. know, but it comes down to, we, strep A should not be killing people in the UK. Because not we, if we you have antibiotics. Yes, but not if you don't take action on it. That's the thing. Um, and that's, why, that's what I mean. But you look, you look back, you know, I'm a big fan of Colin Midwife. It's back on screen, watching New Year's Day. And, uh, you know, back all joking apart, back in the day, they, they often do things about polio, the polio vaccines and how they, you know, they got totally across the vaccination programmes. And this is before they had computerised systems. It was like file systems and what have you. And populations that were, you know, often is there to set in a, in a very poor area of, you know, urban London and, you know, like people coming in like from the the Commonwealth and, you know, language problems and what have you. And they managed to do it then. So really there is very little excuse for government and, you know, policies not being able to be done now. And, and I do really think it kind of comes back, you know, as always to kind of come back full circle, it comes back to the way we do things and how we tackle mm-hmm. problems and how we learn from them. And again, just to kind of tangentially jump jump back to GRR, what we talked about at the beginning, one of my biggest disappointments um, is that that was a real opportunity to show 
Scotland doing things differently with participatory democracy mm-hmm. that had always been, you know, the kind of, you know, the little shining light over the horizon. The Scottish government had legislated for citizens' assembly. It looked so forward thinking that's progressive politics. That's progressive democracy. It's not about your policies. Mm-hmm. It's about your procedure to get there. It's about how you engage the population, how you are touching base, how you are kicking the tires of your argument so that you are assured, like other countries, you see like Ireland we've looked at and you know other areas like Switzerland who use participatory democracy for big changes. Um, Ireland have changed their constitution, you know, on same-sex marriage and abortion. Um, from a citizens' assembly that is then ratifying the national referendum, which I think with the abortion one came within 1% of the final citizens' assembly poll. I think they came within, you know, their representative group clearly proved how representative they were because the final poll really was so close. I'm sure it was within about 1%. So that, to me, is a massively missed opportunity. We could be in a completely different place here. What the outcome of that would be, you know, to be honest, it would have been democratic. Regardless of what the outcome was, we would have truly got a position on the people of Scotland. And I think we would have come to a place of balance, of balanced rights and protections. I think we would have removed the toxicity from the whole debate and the polarisation of the whole debate. And I think we would have avoided the Scottish government looking as if they were, you know, strong arming through a majority um, that they created through an agreement with the Greens um, that we all thought was because they were independence parties. Um, that, you know, they, they are struck pushing through something that nobody that I know from independence supporters can understand why that was the bill to be controversial with. If you want the Scottish, if you want the UK government to come after you in a legal challenge, make it about independence. You know, rally people yeah, behind absolutely. the call. Make, make, make it the right on there. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the Supreme Court challenge we talked about before, but why was why did the Lord Advocate approve this bill? And if that gets pulled down, what does that say about the Lord Advocate's reputation? Why wasn't a preemptive, you know, reference to the Supreme Court made about this bill? Um, and if if that was the case, on the flip side, why was a pre- preemptive reference made about the independent referendum bill? With a majority, they could have pushed through that bill, no problem. From a here's, a, here's a theory. I got told by one of my SMP, I got told one of my SMP friends told me that Nicola Sturgeon actually isn't for um, the GRR bill. So she's personally hoping it's going to fail. Having done all she can to push it forward, she's hoping for a legal challenge that beats it. I find that odd, considering like you know what we know about um, a lot of the push that's where it's come from. I don't think. Yeah. Have you put yeah, most people I, in, a, I, I in, a, in an individual room and asked them their honest opinion? Um, many people would be happy with the way this bill has been done. I don't think anybody can be can be comfortable. And the fact that people are are I mean, some of them you know post that were were being so obtuse in some of the stuff that they put out. This self congratulatory you know like you're know, clapping to one side of a gallery just looks entirely polarized. It, it, the optics are dreadful. Um, and, I, and if that's an inclusive par- parliament, then they're really not doing themselves any justice. Did, did the lady with the fake uh, vagina in the gallery, did anything, I, I heard <laughs> that they were investigating that. Yes, did anything come of that? I don't, I don't believe so. But I mean, you know, 
a pair of leggings with like you know Vivian Westwood would have been arrested if that was the case. I've seen her wearing yeah, things like that. You know, really, it's um, um, one one last thing to kind of tie it up because it's not. I mean, it's not all bad with the Scottish government. They, I mean, one of the things they announced. Um, Again, it was intermingled with the nonsense of COVID. It was pharma, uh, pharmacy first, which is where you, for people, I mean, there's some people who just love to see their GP. I'm not one of them. I, I would quite happily deal with the receptionist if I thought it would get me through the system quicker. It, it doesn't bother me. Um, they, they came up with pharmacy first, and the idea was you could go and see your pharmacist and they could kind of dispense things to you that previously they couldn't, and therefore, you know, we'd would be a, step, a couple of steps forward and it would release the pressure in HS. That is a good policy. It just, I mean, again, to the same point. For example, I've got, I've got um, eczema and occasionally I get skin infections when it's cold, it's too dry, my skin can't normally kind of rehydrate on my hands, then I pick up an infection in my hand and I need a steroid cream to clear it. I get this steroid cream probably once a year and I've done so for once a year for God knows how many years of my life now. The problem is, my pharmacist, despite dispensing it to me every single year, cannot prescribe me my steroid cream because it needs to be a GP. Following that, we had COVID. A pharmacist can't give you Paxlovid, so they can't give you the they can't give you the anti-COVID medication. You have to see a GP or you need to see a hospital. And then we've got strep A, which is the current big bad. And again, we have antibiotics. We have we have treatments available for it, but again, the pharmacists are referring you back to a GP in a hospital. So it's not that it's a bad idea. Pharmacy first is a good idea. But again, we forgot to actually give the pharmacist any additional tools yeah. to say... Um, yeah, so it's interesting because you're obviously in a more urban area than I am. I'm in a kind of rural area, yeah. in, a, in a rural area. Um, and I think like most things, things are very rarely one size fits all. So... I actually live beside our, our doctors that's not been open for ages. There's, a, there's another practice in another village, um, which is a little bit annoying if I need to go to the doctor. Um, instead of walking next door, I've got to drive for 15 minutes. But if you live up in the kind of furthest villages up the road from me, you're talking about a two-hour round trip to get to the doctor. Now, we've got, mm -hmm. we've got a, a doctor surgery that used to have a dispensing pharmacy. And there was a massive um, public outcry here when somebody tried to open a pharmacy quite a number of years ago um, because you couldn't keep the dispensing pharmacy. It, it was actually a, a legislation thing um, within a certain radius. Um, so they had to... Anyway, it, it failed at that point, but it came back a few years later with a much less case, actually. And for some bizarre reason, it's it's non-professionals, I think, on the panel. I think it was the, the kind of layperson that kind of was deciding to vote who voted for... The pharmacy. So, long story short, the doctors is now at risk because of the pharmacy license. Now we have been the, the person that did it originally didn't fulfil any of the promises about delivering medication and being open six days a week and all the things that they said they were going to do. But we were incredibly lucky that there was a young pharmacist who actually bought it, who is amazing. And without him, I don't know how our local area was to get through COVID. I mean, he really does everything and more, and dispenses stuff, and can actually prescribe some stuff. I think you can prescribe penicillin. Not, I, I can't take penicillin. But, um, so I've got to get, you know, but he will organise that. I mean, they've got a very good relationship with the GP, and uh, they are trying to manage a very, very big geographic area. With that that sounds like it's how it should be. It, but 
It's down to individuals rather than policy, Graham. That's the problem. It's down to individuals, individual GPs, and how they work with a local pharmacist, and whether that local, if that local pharmacist running a business decided him and his wife are going to emigrate to Australia, we could have nothing within a huge area Mm -hmm. because there there would be no services. I know a little bit about this. So one, you know, if you go across the water and you go to South Queens Ferry, which is near to where I am, mm-hmm. if you go into South Queens Ferry, they, they have two pharmacies and they're both, I think they're both Lloyd's pharmacies or something. I could have that totally wrong, but I think they're Lloyd's pharmacies. And this, this comes up in their billboard quite often because Lloyd's Pharmacy are short of pharmacists just now, which isn't a great surprise. It's not a Lloyd's confined problem. It's a problem. Yeah. So someone much like what you're saying um, like a soul trader or a a pharmacist who wants to get in the game but doesn't necessarily want to work for one of these companies. He wants to kind of do it the way he does it. And I think he was working with his wife as well, which is, you know, a good analogue. Maybe we're stealing your pharmacist, who knows? But what they said, they wanted to open a community, they wanted to open a little community pharmacy and do their own thing. But they, they, their thing was kind of, well, you ain't going to have a shortage with us because we're always going to be here. And while our hours and such won't increase on the, the, the commercial offering, it is a third choice. It's quite reliable. I'm not going anywhere. It's quite predictable. And South Queensferry has these major issues where the pharmacist, you know, is not often a local pharmacist. They're a travelling pharmacist in the sense of one gets kicked round Edinburgh to go and staff a day a week. And they're saying, well, when they're sick or when they're off for Christmas or such, the service is atrocious. And it, it's funny because Edinburgh Council refused the community pharmacist who presumably lives in the area and just, you know, I think he was, you know, he was winding down his career, but he wanted to do this was his kind of few hours a day. And it's funny, the entire community thought this was a wonderful idea. He thought it was a wonderful idea. And actually, the, the decision makers looked at it and said, actually, we'll keep the commercial pharmacies that actually don't fulfil the agreement that we have in place. And we'll address that. And, it, you know, individuals make, you know, your community pharmacist, you've just said, makes a huge impact in your um, community. If you could have a decent community pharmacist who can treat you know, much more than, oh, you've got the cold, well, we have the cold and flu tablets. If we have somebody who's genuinely interested in the health of their community, which comes from being a local, you're going to reduce the burden naturally on the NHS. And, it, I mean, I guess the risk is if they overprescribe, we could have a bit of overprescription in the antibiotics, and there might be some reactions. But I think on the balance, there's an awful, you know, decreasing pressure on the NHS has got to be up there now. We've got to try and do that. Um, which I guess we, we maybe we maybe need to park it here because I don't know if we'll solve the NHS between us tonight. I think we could give it a bash, but <laughs> it leads us into kind of the rest of the omni shambles, the the, mm-hmm. the the perma crisis. So Scott Rail, I know you joked earlier, but Scott Rail are about to go. I don't know if it's Scott Rail or Network Rail, or I've lost all sense of who's in, who's striking, who's not. But yeah, they're about real. to have a five day strike. Um, yeah. We've, we've got strikes happening all over. The primary schools are striking in seven days or something as well. So and, and high a teacher strike. Well, in high school. Mm-hmm. Sorry? And the high school. Obviously, so, 11. And the high school. So we, we've got we've got strikes here, strikes there. Half it's pay, half it's working conditions, half it's, you know, they're the overloaded. I mean, we're, we're in a bit of a predicament, aren't we? 
Yeah, well, you know me in process. I was reading a thing on Twitter about, it was from RMT, and it was about um, the maintenance of the, the line and the maintenance work. And they're looking yeah. to they're looking to half it like with 50%, right? So they're saying it's going to be 50%, and yet they're saying it's going to be on a, a risk-based maintenance. Okay. Rather now, than preventive, yeah. Well, preventative maintenance is risk-based maintenance. That was my point. It's risk-based in that if you do something in a proactive way, it is usually less expensive, it's got much less risk to safety than in a waiting for a problem to happen or looking at just on a... I mean, you, you talked before about prescribing and how the Scottish government realised that the cost of administering a system of, you know, of prescriptions was less than a universal benefit. So it's the same concept. It's like to do this risk-based... You know, if you're risk-based a whole network... Constantly saying, well, which bit, which bit? One, you're going to make mistakes. And two, there's a lot of effort goes into that rather than actually just doing preventive maintenance. And, you know, the, the risk to safety is, you know, severity is exceptionally high. This is like, you know, people trusting, you know, we've all seen, you know, the, the result of a, of a train crash or like signal failures and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there's some events that happen, you know, that's, you know, you know, weather, you know, impacted and different things, but, and there's always costs of public inquiries to these things and everything. All these things that you try and prevent preventative maintenance and think that that's where cost cutting should be always comes back to bite you with a bigger cost. Always. Reactive is always more expensive. And I mean more expensive financially, but also potentially in people's lives. And this is what the RMT are actually trying to make that case to the public, because there's very much, you know, the government and the, a lot of the media are trying to make it as if it's like bah humbug. Oh, he's just moaning again. Oh, the train drivers make X amount of money. Most train drivers are not in RMT. It's mostly like, you know, maintenance workers, people who man the ticket, you know, operators, the, the conductors on trains, the guards on trains, which again, many, many people have said, you know, particularly seen quite a lot of cases of women on Twitter talking about how they've had really scary experiences on trains and they don't know what they would have done if there hadn't been a train guard to come and actually, you know, resolve the situation. So you're actually potentially making people not want to take public transport, not want to take the train for, you know, fear of safety, both on, you know, the more catastrophic, you know, on the line or individual personal safety of women not wanting to travel on the train alone, like particularly at night. Well, um, we know the name of this though, because we can look at, again, we can look at like America, we can look at the New York um, Metro, the underground in New York, and we can see on TikTok or on YouTube or anything, you, you can see the sort of general, they're like, oh, I wouldn't ride it after eight o'clock at night because it becomes a bit of a hellhole. Mm -hmm. And th that's because it doesn't have any, but it doesn't have you know, the train conductor, it doesn't have the, it doesn't no governance. Have the train guard wandering. Mm -hmm. It's no governance. No. It's, um, it's where everything seems to fall down is, you know, people don't understand the value of something that they can't see or count. And, you know, I used to train on this stuff about proactive maintenance. Um, I won't get into boring technical job stuff, but, you know, a lot of this really is down to, you know, People know Red Adair who put out, you know, oil rig fires, but not the engineer who created the shut-off valve, you know, who probably has saved more lives. You know, people know the, yeah. the kind of reactive is, is visible. The proactive is actually 
a bit boring, a bit dull, but it's totally essential. And it's about good governance. Good governance is not something you see. You, but, you know, if it's not there, it's like your house insurance. You don't buy house insurance because you're planning your house to burn down. You buy house insurance because if it ever does, it's what saves you. You know, it's what saves your ability to recover. Um, and this is a big problem. I think there's a real lack of understanding in policy and across different areas of our society. And the people who stand up and try and say, look, there's a problem here. And you talked about like, justice. That's another one about legal aid. That might seem quite an innocuous thing. But if you start getting to the stage that people can't afford to work in the law... What, is, what does that do to society? Where's justice if people can't get legal aid? And actually, you know, because some of these kind of, particularly some of the young lawyers coming out are doing so many hours for such low, you know, hourly date. You know, why would the brightest and best go into that unless they can afford to? And then you start getting up the ranks of the judiciary. We talked before about the Supreme Court and how it's, you know, largely all white men. Um, so, but how do you get a diverse judiciary if you don't start off with having a diverse there, legal body? There is no shortage of corporate lawyers. Because? Because there's money. Exactly. So, Alison, where does the money come from? Where are we paying for everything from? Well, That's where really we are... To let all our listeners know, this was not scripted before we came on, so I'm literally just asking Alison live, where is Alison from <laughs> the whole of Scotland? Wait to just reach over to my left-hand side. Um, if we're talking about Scotland as it is now, in the UK, then, you know, we've talked many times about the, you know, ultimately we're, and I'm not making any excuses for Scottish government, by the way, but we're, we are where we are, you know, practically, pragmatically, we are hamstrung by the financial situation we're on um, at the moment and the fact that we get a grant back of some of our, you know, the cumulative, you know, income and assets and our efforts. We get a, a grant back, which we've got to spend within a budget. I think there's a very, very minimum amount of borrowing that can happen. So with those constraints, you can't make radical change. And what Scotland actually needs is radical change. I mean, I was talking to somebody on Twitter today who was still spouting, I think reading between the lines of the Labour person, um, but mm -hmm. um, very dis disparaging about independence, but totally singing from the Thatcher tax and spend hymn sheet. And you're like, I thought you were Labour, really? Is there, do people still do that? I do, there is, there is, no, 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 not that Thatcherism is something that I want to see return, but there is an argument that you know Nicola Sturgeon stands up there and says, we're going to tax the people with the broadest shoulders more. And I often sort of roll my eyes because we just redefine who's got the broadest shoulders. And we're now approaching the point that they've effectively fiddled with all the rates as much as they can. That they, they've now, they've now kind of... You know, I I think what is it the rate twenty six thousand and that's the average. I think twenty six thousand is kind of like the national average salary, and they've decided the people with the broadest shoulders. But well, I'm sorry, if you define the national average as the broadest shoulders, you've you've kind of you know that means that half the population <laughs> are in that. Like they can't. Yeah. When people hear the word "let's tax the broadest shoulders," they certainly don't mean midway. 
And then secondly, they certainly, you know, people are like, well, you can't just tax the top because they'll flee. And that, that probably is true. There's also not that many of them. So we have to have a look at what other, what other 5 yep. million population companies did. And you know what? It becomes quite clear why we are absolutely not able to fund these things. Because if you look at Ireland, Ireland joined the European Union and then Ireland effectively became a multinational you know, digital haven and it headquarters, you know, the European headquarters for Apple, for Amazon, for big companies like Vodafone and everything are all in Ireland. Now, Ireland yep. goes and head, butts head with the EU all the time about they're not charged enough tax. But I tell you what, Ireland charges enough tax that Ireland is well off. We yep. then look at other countries like Iceland. Iceland went, well, do you know what? We're geostrategically quite an important place. We should have a lot of boats and a big airline and we, we can do that sort of thing. And Iceland has created this whole massive economy on the fact that they just have an airport that's kind of bang in the middle of the Atlantic, which is quite useful for all manner of things. And they're not, you know, they, they don't really get involved in geopolitical fights. So actually, being this great neutral country that sits in the middle of the Atlantic, apparently, is very good for aviation and shipping. And then we go to Norway, and they went, well, we found oil, and if we if it's not our oil, we'll create the, the big rig thing that drills it out here. You know, they've got these massive industries, and well, we've got oil, and if we can't have oil, we've got fish, and if we don't have fish, we'll build the kit to either get the fish or the oil. And, you know, they've got these phenomenal ideas. And then it comes to us and it's a bit like, oh, well, we have a lot of wind, we have a lot of oil, we have a lot of things, you know, we're a, a stable country, we're a strong democracy, we have good legal understanding, we speak English, you know, we have a lot going for us. And we're like, well, do you know what? <clears throat> Park all that because we're going to once again go and read the, the piggy banks, uh, the people who are earning and you know you check your notes and it's the average wage yeah like that's no way to get out of it we're gonna have to come up with it's like you say we need a radical solution and this this could be the point from the grr through covid through the nhs through the strikes through the the, the ineptitude when it comes to our economy are the governments just out of steam? So the Tory government's been out of steam for a year and a bit because they got Brexit done, they got the cake they wanted, it just... They're celebrating deals that the Australians are laughing about, the, the, the New Zealand people are having a great big party about because actually we got nothing out of the deal, they won everything they possibly wanted out of it. And then we turn around to the SNP and they've kind of been told we're not getting independence and we've, they've, they've run out of steam. Is it time now? And I don't think it's time for the SNP to go away because I genuinely believe a political party is whoever its leader is. It, it, you know, its leader sets the direction. Is it time we just retire the Sturgeons, the Salmons, the, you know, the, 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 the people in these parties? They've done, do you know what? Let's give them a round of applause and say, you got us this far on, but it's time, you know, for the Kate Forbes, for the, the Ash Denhams, for the you know, the Robert Reeds at Alba and such, to, 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 to jump in there and say, actually, we're new, we're youthful, we've got all these brand new ideas. And, you know, what was his name? Is it James Dyson? The, the Dyson founder? It's James Dyson, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe James Dyson. Well, yeah. Mr. Dyson, I'll call him. Mr. Dyson. <laughs> he once said that everybody he ever spoke to about his Dyson vacuums and his Dyson hairdryers, which, by the way, are extortionate, and all his kits extortionate, his bladeless fans and everything extortionate. He, he, he said, you know, they told me 
you shouldn't do this because it's not how it works and it doesn't do that. And he says, well, there was me. He says, a total naive tinkerer. And he says, and I went in there and I tinkered about with things and I says, oh, well, that works and it's quite cool and it's novel and it's new. And he says, well, I have this great big company. He says, sometimes you need the naivety of not being experienced to be bold enough to try and do something new. And yeah. he said, you, you end up, um, and you know, you, you, I know a lot of people don't like the Dyson company for something. However, they're a great example of a fantastic, you know, British company that's come up and has designed fantastic products that are worldwide. They're still designed in the UK and they've, they, they, they've kind of, they bounced forward on the basis of, well, do you know what? We'll give it a bash and we'll do it kind of cool. And I think that you know, independence and all these problems are struggling with the fact that we've got the same old people sitting in the same old job. I mean, a cabinet reshuffles now is a bit like, well, where's hum where's Humza going this week? Where's Shirley Ann going next week? Where's Shona Robinson going? I mean, I mean, when when Shona Robinson is the same answer, like she's going to be the transport minister, she's going to be the economy minister, she's going to be the gender minister now, like. I'm not putting Shona Robson down at all because she might be fantastic, but again, how has Hamza Yousaf been the solution to 10 different problems and they're all still here? Like, at some point, we don't need experience. We need absolute bam pottery, naivety, and, a, and a, an outcome focus that says, by the way, our trains are absolutely crap. The way the services run is crap. It's no on time. It doesn't even work. We need. I don't know how we explain it, but we need to stop putting the same old people back into the, the problem and saying, you've never solved anything before, crack at this. Yeah, do you know what? It's back to the whole thing Sorry. about the power, <laughs> the power of the idiot question, as he used to say. Um, you know, but why? It's like the kids, but why? Why does it do that? We don't ask enough questions. And I think this is a big problem with established political power is that people assume you've got all the answers. And I completely agree, and I think you kind of paraphrased my wee saying the last time, can the same old faces make new cases? And, you know, we are no further forward in, you know, the personalities than we were in 2014. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon's still there, Alex Salmon's still there, Patrick Harvey's still there. And it's like, you know, if Scotland in eight years not surfaced new people and if not why not because I know there are so many talented people across Scotland but you know I keep coming back to I think we need to look beyond traditional politics because traditional politics what I've learned in my brief sojourn into behind the curtain in political parties is it's very muscle memory people just do what they're familiar with and if you really want to look at things in a, in a radical way and I I Kind of controversially, I think there's only a few politicians, I would say, and I really mean a few politicians, who genuinely are pretty bold and radical. And I think it doesn't matter what political rosette they wore, they would still be very firmly principled. And when I say principled, I mean focused on doing the right process, you know, like to, to, to doing the rigour, to doing the good governance, to thinking things through. And to doing it with the right reasons for you know for on principle, rather than on, on political career, and you know we need more of these people. You know you know 
you're talking like you know from right back 100 years ago John McLean you're talking about you know 50 years ago um, Jimmy Reed. you're talking about you know Mary Barber and the Glasgow Rangers people who just they wanted change and they made it happen and you know it's almost like you know you start in politics wanting change and you end up wanting power and once you've got the power it all becomes yeah. about keeping the power and you're right if for ind- independence is not a transactional election I don't know how many times I've, I've said this it's not a transactional election, but my view is political parties only know how to do transactional elections. They don't really understand what happened in 2014. And if it was a proper debrief, and I'm sure the unionists did it, because they've kind of like definitely, you know, learned a lot of stuff that they've done, and they've learned in Brexit, and you know, they've you know retrenched. I'm not saying it's all the same people, but a lot of the kind of establishment have learned how to, you know, how to manage things and. There, I think there, there's a bit of a tsunami coming this year um, and all this time's on my side crap from the First Minister. She doesn't control all the cards. She controls very few of them, actually. So you not only have to make sure your house is in order, you have to keep an eye on your opposition and make sure you are covering all the bases and you've gamed all the scenarios. And to announce a party conference that's an emergency in March, in spring, for something that, you know, the general election could be called in spring, for all we know. Do you know what I mean? We don't control these levers. But who is out there? Who is currently sitting out there? And please comment or tweet us yeah. or phone us I mean, or... I'm not going to embarrass online, but I I do have, you know, a a kind of dream team of people that I would love to see. I mean, on one hand, I would love to see them in politics in Scotland because I believe that they would make a difference. But on the flip side, I wouldn't wish it my worst enemy (laughs) because, you know, the way currently... Who is calling on Nicola Sturgeon right now? Hmm? Who is out there saying Nicola Sturgeon's about to announce another grand plan? That's got, I mean, we've had consultation. I mean, the Scottish government loves a bloody consultation. You have a consultation for the consultation of the the analysis. That they, but nobody can be surely sitting at home just now going, do you know what? Nicola Sturgeon's got the answers. Nicola Sturgeon's got the answer and sweet bugger all at this moment in time. If Nicola um, had the answers, we would have heard it by now. I mean, eight years. You know, how have we actually progressed independence? We've, we've talked about this till we're blue in the face but we really need to this year I think start to look at the problem in a different way of Scottish independence because the, the thing that I just find so galling is that as a population we've never been closer and the people who really built this road for us you know through generations have been thought of as you know you know, on the edge of politics and doing the hard yards and knocking doors and small victories and getting into double figures was a celebration, never mind getting elected. And then it was like catastrophic, you know, surprise to the establishment that the SNP actually got got a seat. They've settled into power without really absorbing why they got power. And if you don't understand why, then you just assume it's for, you know, potentially the wrong reasons. And that can only go so far. And I think Scottish Labour, you know, in our recent history, have shown the results of taking the electorate for granted. And I think yeah. that, you know, I mean, I don't think Nicola Sturgeon will be there that much longer. I think she looks like somebody who is probably wanting to be away, but I think she wants to be away in her terms. Um, but and I don't want to offend anybody, I really don't see any alternatives at the moment um, Like to engage the population. I really think that the, the best way to engage Scotland is to try and 
do what worked in 2013-14 and that is peer-to-peer you know campaigning and that isn't to put all the hard yards on independence activists who've like really tried and knocked their pan in over the last eight years to you know to be told when the polls went up that it was because of the politicians when the polls went down it was because of the yes movement i mean really that's what an abusive relationship but i really i really do think but but when i say peer-to-peer that has to be led by something that puts independence on the front pages and on the television and that is a constitutional convention. That's what happened after the devolution referendum. You know, that people like Isabel Lindsay and that got together and, you know, had a constitutional convention and made people interested. And it was credible. They, they, it was, you know, serious people going through the detail of things and making, you know, the unconvinced feel more confident that there was a credibility behind this. You know, and that's teasing out a lot of the things before you stick it on a leaflet and try and convince somebody, you know, at a door. But the, I mean, all, all, and we talked before about citizens' assemblies for GRR, which I think is a massive missed opportunity. I think citizens' assemblies, participatory democracy in general, should have been normalised by now. And I think GRR would have been a very good one to do, and it would have been very aligned with Ireland's changes. But the, the, the only one they've done was so vague and so unreported, and I believe so little of it was actually implemented it looks like a tick box exercise. It's a toy you got Christmas, played with once and chucked it over in the corner, where it is actually Scotland's chance to engage the population. Talking to people from the Irish one, it was incredibly empowering for people. Um, so constitutional convention and assistance assembly will put independence on the front page. It will get people talking about it at the dinner table again. That's what we need. You know, it's easy for politicians to tell people from the pulpit, you know, go and have conversations. And it's like, to what end? If you won't do anything, who actually, they need to create the catalysts. That's the problem. That's not there. We don't have a solution for it at the moment. But the solution is there. They're just not choosing to take it. Well, we're in our last, I mean, we're at 57 minutes. So we're about to finish. So we have to finish, unfortunately. We could talk for days. But here's my question. Okay. Here's my question. We're going to finish light because we always try and finish light here in the Viva Cost podcast. If you could steal a politician from any country in the world, who would you steal? Why would you steal them? Me? I would definitely steal Mary Lou MacDonald. And the reason why is because she, like, literally oozes, you know, confidence and determination. And I think she articulates her very clear message in a communicative way, which leaves no doubt of... I mean, you would not bet against her. And I think a politician you would not bet against is a good politician. Because, you know, Ireland have a very complex situation that she has cut straight through and has appealed on many different areas. I mean, she's not a traditional Sinn Féin politician. So she has had the battle just to be accepted within Sinn Féin. If you look, you know, through her history, she's more kind of kind of liberal, kind of labour type person. I think early early doors, quite reasonably, you know, affluent area, Dublin, etc. But she has managed to connect with people in a way that I think has been exceptionally powerful. And the whole way she articulates change is happening. It's not up for debate. Change is happening and the change is up to the people and the change will be inclusive. I mean, you can rhyme off this stuff because she says it consistently. I could not rhyme off anything Nicola Sturgeon says about independence. 
I, I genuinely couldn't. But I could rhyme off all the stuff that Mary Lou McDonald. I think Michelle O'Neill is very good as well. But I have to say, if I was to pick one, it would be Mary Lou McDonald's. What What if you could have one from any time in history? Would it change, or is it still the same? Mm, no, I've got quite a few kind of <laughs> legacy, you know, historic figures. <laughs> um, not, not an actual politician, but it was involved in politics. Would be John McLean, because I think. The reason John McLean was, I mean, we're, we're talking in a very difficult era and a very difficult circumstance. He's very dangerous and actually died as a result of being imprisoned. But John McLean, you know, those people who even know who he is, you know, think of him as being a kind of political activist. But John McLean was an, was an educator. And I think this is a key thing, again, that, you know, why I'm saying about participatory democracy, such as assemblies, constitutional convention, it's about educating people. It's about getting people to raise their heads and actually look at the aspiration and the vision that Scotland can be and understanding the assets that we have and being honest about the challenges we've got as well. If you don't look honestly at a situation, then you can hope to fix it. And I think we, we need honest politicians and uh, that is a, a rarity I think in, in today, I also admire people like um, like Jimmy Reid. Admire um, I admire Tony Bl Tony Ben as well. I actually think Tony Ben. Alison, you, know, you, were, you you were asked for one or two, and you're now on about ten. Well, really, I mean, I was telling you, you're really the politician. You've picked a cabinet now. Obviously, Nelson Mandela as well. You know, like you know, a kind of man of principle. <laughs> there we go. I've got a few women, a few men thrown in to the mix. What about you? I think. Do you know? Do you know that mine are all going to be that controversial? People love. I mean, I've, what was it I said in the last podcast? I said that we should make Harry and Meghan the current head of the royal family, and that went down. I mean, I got. I've, we've not had much negative feedback, but that definitely was the most negative we've had for it. And it's always my controversial opinions that do this. Um, who would I have? Well, if I was being if I was being sensible. I like Pete Buttigieg from America. I think he, Mayor Pete, Secretary Mayor Pete, he's a right boring nerd. Like, he is into the the absolute basics of train transport. He is into in, infrastructure, better highways, really putting highways and motorways where they should be and not disrupting communities looking at restorative transformational infrastructure like where would a port be useful where would an airport be useful where would where would trains be useful where where is transport terrible how can we get cars like where where can we make an impact where people would choose not to drive like how do we do that and do you know what he is boring and i know he's boring and I don't find him boring, but I am a boring person. So I mean, I think he's. I think he's fascinating, and I think that the uh, the Americans have no idea that he should be their next president. He is absolutely the guy who should be the next president of the United States. See, I go for the big influence, yeah. you know, the influence, and you're going for the soft influence, the actual make a difference, you know, like the kind of tangible difference. Yeah, I don't think he's offensive. Like, I don't think he's offensive to Republicans. He, well, he is, because, but he's not in the same sense. He, he's offensive, but not mm. in the way that they... I mean, they hate Nancy Pelosi just oh, for yeah. existing. But <laughs> he isn't offensive in that way, because they're kind of like, oh, well, here he comes with his trains again. Tell him to go away. And then... 
you know, my other one would probably I like American politics. I'm a geek for American politics. I liked Hillary Clinton. I like her sass. I like her I like some of the things she's been involved in, you know. When when she was the the equivalent of the foreign secretary across there, she she was phenomenal. Some of the things that Hillary Clinton and some of the, the ceilings that Hillary Clinton broke with nations who, by the way, would sooner have a woman taped to the back wall than, than have her opinion sitting at the table. You know, she walked into a room and I think somebody was like, oh, I'm not going to listen to women wear hair on display. And the next day she came in wear hair like up and out to be like, well, you will respect what I bring to the table. It's my contribution and it's the country I represent, not... You know, she really, really impressed me that way, and she she was a feminist to her core. Um, I think if I could have either name, I think if I was going, you know, I can't. Historically, there's so many, and you've stolen all the good ones. So, I <laughs> think that if I was to pick someone, I think if I'm having some fun for a minute, I quite like the whole. I mean, Aaron Sorkin wrote The West Wing series one to four, yeah. um, and he wrote The Newsroom. And that had, that had Will, and it had Mackenzie McHale, and then they were fantastic because they were. They, I always felt that the newsroom was a really good show, and I always felt Will. He was, he was a conservative, and he was a Republican, and he was written in a very interesting manner that was like, you know, I'm a conservative, but at the same time, I have social values. And then, I think that if we could see something on like the Sorkin. White House, the Sorkin sort of philosophy of, um, you know, left wing. And he, you know, Sorkin was maybe not a socialist or anything of the sort, but Sorkin's left wing leaning politics, if we could have Josiah Bartlett, you know, yes. President Josiah Bartlett, we could, if we could copy the spirit and essence of him into into this country and some of the ideas. And that, you know, I have to give Robin McAlpine and the common wheel a bit of a wee plug here and I know I know you'll support this as well. It's interesting to sometimes hear some of Robin's rants, um or I shouldn't call them rants, that's a bit unfair. They're not rants, they're informed, vibrant yeah, discussions. Should we call them that? <laughs> yeah, they're an informed, vibrant discussion. And the interesting thing is when you listen to some of them and you listen to like why don't we take control and hand it to the communities and stuff, I, you know, you can't help but you don't even have to agree with him. You actually could think this guy is mental, but the enthusiasm and the transference and the responsibility shifting it from politicians to citizens is so exciting, so yeah. exciting. And I the hope that yeah. I was just going to say the difference. That just... It's an honest politics. What he says, he actually means. He feels it. Absolutely. And he will do the research and he will back it up. And if he thinks he's getting it wrong, he will change his mind. And it's back to what I'm saying about think, being more honesty in politics. And I think that's that's a phenomenal point for us to end on at an hour and ten minutes or something, is that we need more honesty in politics, but second, we need the honesty that we got it wrong. We need the integrity. And we need the... We need the inspiration. We need new voices in the room. We need excitement. We need the geeks. We need the fun. We need the. We need to get away from this. All their experienced politicians so bow down to them. They're absolutely yeah. full of rubbish. Monica Lennon is in the Scottish Labour Party, and Monica Lennon has so many good 
policy proposals she brings forward. And I'm glad some of them are finally starting to come forward because, do you know what, I'll, I think the Scottish Labour Party, Party are a talentless, feckless, useless, remnant, uh, historical cruft in Scotland. However, Monica Lennon's actually a bright light in there that comes up with fairly decent policies. Her own party half the time don't support her, but the Scottish Government should be supporting Monica Lennon. As a, these are good ideas. Um, and we need more people like that. We need more geeks. We need more wild people. We need more outside influences. And do you know what? We need to, we need to get politics back to being exciting and yeah. changeable. And so all of that is premised but, on having leadership that actually inspire people rather than try to control and just to get power and personal power. And I think the personality politics that has come over from the US to the UK and to Scotland is what is stopping us actually progressing. And we need to look beyond individuals, because let's be honest, you know, as we said about new faces, you know, to make new cases, then, you know, why can, why would we premise our future on individuals? It's a country, it's not about a party, it's not about individuals, it's about the people of Scotland and conversing and debating and building consent with people that you don't necessarily agree with. And I think the, the entrenchment of party politics and the toxicity of the debate has been really really hostile and the only way to change that is to demand better and not accept it well that's the 2023 opening to yeah. the viva cost podcast um it has been a pleasure dear listeners and dear viewers if you're still watching this on youtube um it has been a genuine pleasure i am sorry that our content output has been so lackluster and poor Wish we had a good excuse. It has been busy, but we have also been lazy. Yeah. We will fix that in the. We will fix that shortly. And it's your usual reminder that you should absolutely help contribute, and you should submit anything you like. We do usually run everything unedited. Um, it's quite a bit of fun. People disagree with you quite a bit. Um, we're not. I'm not the most agreeable. Per Alison's slightly more agreeable than I am. I'm not the most agreeable person in the world. It has been a pleasure to host you on this podcast at an hour and ten minutes. I've been Graham. Alison's been Alison. Alison. I think good that's us. Goodbye and good night. Good night and good luck. <laughs> Something like that. Edward R. Murrow.